This is the audio of Bible study taught by Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. You can find our website at goodshepherdlincoln.org, and there's a uh, treasure trove of other information available there as well. Uh, let's get into Bible study now. We're talking about Noah and the flood. Specifically, where we're at right now is talking about the end of the flood. This is where we finally start to get into a world that we recognize more clearly. And the question then is, where is it that Noah and the ark come to land? I think uh, Pastor Poppy asked this question a couple weeks ago. And we ended last time... Introducing the kingdom of Urartu, which is where the word Ararat comes from. Um, and it, it is Ararat if you just change the vowels, which in Hebrew, um, they don't have vowels, they only have consonants. And so they are spelled the exact same way, Ararat and Urartu. And actually, it's come down to us in English in the word Armenia. So Armenia, Urartu, they're actually all the same place, the same location, just over the course of 5,000 years, uh, the name has changed just a little bit. And so we're talking about the kingdom of Urartu. And I want to talk a little bit about that today um, because I think it's important to put it in its historic context, specifically because this is an argument that helps us verify who wrote the book of Genesis. All right? And what I mean is this. Um, The argument is made in our world today that the book of Genesis was written during the Babylonian captivity by groups of people who took different snippets of other things and put them together into the book of Genesis and even uh, the rest of the Pentateuch as well. Okay, And they call this the J-D-E-P theory. But I think the reference to Urartu here actually argues against that. Because... The kingdom of Urartu is destroyed and doesn't exist any longer when the JDEP people say the book of Genesis is written. It does exist during the lifetime of Moses. And I think that's an argument that says this book isn't written later, but rather it's written earlier at the time that Moses was alive and at the time of the Exodus, just like the Scripture claims. Um, And so, for Moses, think about his life being from about um, 1500 B.C. to 1400 B.C. Uh, It's a little bit different than that, but I'm just trying to get it to that century. That's about the time that he lived The Exodus is at about 1445 B.C., and these books then have to be written between 
that time and 1405 B.C., which is about the time that Moses dies. And of course, with all things, we have a little bit of leeway, a little bit of cushion there, uh, because it is ancient history. And we get to that area, that number, based upon the words Solomon speaks when he dedicates the temple in Jerusalem. It mentions there how many years it has been since the Israelites left Egypt. And so you do some math there. We have a pretty good idea when Solomon lived and when the temple was built. We get a good idea of when the Exodus occurred. And that tells us when these books must be written. Okay? And so that falls in perfectly with the existence of the kingdom of Urartu, which is then destroyed at about 700 B.C., um, before these JDEP people say the book of Genesis was written. And I want to I defend my position here. That's what we're going to try and do. All right, so um, Urartu, the word, I think I mentioned this last time, is first mentioned by King Shalamaneser I in about the year 1275. And at that time, he mentions this kingdom had been fighting against him. And of course, as a king of the Assyrians, um, he talks about how he's mopping the floor with them, which is not necessarily true because the kingdom of Urartu is actually on the rise at that point. There's also evidence that the kingdom of Urartu existed before that. Um, there's a king from about 2200 B.C. named Naram-Sin, and he's the king of Akkad, which is the old word for Babylon, okay? Uh, Akkad is Babylon, okay? That's why they're the Achaemenid Empire, Akkad, okay? Naram-Sin mentions them, but he uses a slightly older term, Okay, and so it's the same word, but it's changed just a little bit. But it is the oldest reference to the kingdom of Urartu. And at that time, it's not actually a kingdom. That's not the way he speaks of it. It's actually an area that collects about eight different tribes of people and the region that they live in, according to the uh, Babylonians, is called uh, something very, very close to Urartu. All right? And that's probably because they weren't necessarily the Urartians then. Instead, they are the Hurrians. And maybe you've heard of Hurrians before. They are... Anybody? Okay. No one is as nerdy as me, so... <laughs> All right. The Hurrians are one of the very, very, very earliest civilizations, and they invent things like um, the lyre by taking a, a bull's skull with its horns and then putting strings in there, and you can play it, okay? They also are some of the first people we have evidence of making things like wine. Um, and we have evidence in that area of winemaking uh, that is very, very old. And their kingdom is located in about that same area, slightly south, 
But you'll see here on this map, the green country is Akkad. This is the original Babylonian Empire. And you'll notice that the green arrows are pointed into the purple where the Hurrians are. That's because this is at the time of um, Naram-Sin. He does invade and destroy the Hurrian kingdom. Now, when you invade and destroy a kingdom, the ruling system, the government might be destroyed, but is it easy to just eliminate the people? No, no. This is... um, You know this from World War II, right? The Germans very easily conquered Poland and uh, all the other countries in Europe. But when it actually came to eliminating the people they didn't want, that was a very difficult job to accomplish. (laughs) Okay? And the same is true in the ancient world. They eliminate the government of the Hurrians... But eliminating the actual people is difficult. And so they still lived there. And after the collapse of the Babylonian Empire, Achad, the people still live there. They reunite into this new kingdom of Urartu. Okay, now am I making sense so far? All right. Now, they become Urartu... And this is eventually the area at the the maximum extent of the kingdom of Urartu. And I showed this to you last week. And the Hurrians, see this lake right here? They are, that's Lake Van. They were just to the south of that. And then they expanded northward and became the Urartians. And you even see the similarity between the word Hurrian and Urartu. They both have the ur in the beginning. Okay, that's the relation. Language changes over time. So, at the time of Moses, remember Moses began in Egypt, and he was raised where? In Pharaoh's household. Is Pharaoh's household a place where politics is important? Is part of politics having a state department, if you will, (laughs) that interacts with all the other nations and lands around you. Yes. Yes. We have evidence of this in something called the Amarna letters, which would be about the year 1300 BC, where it mentions all the other kingdoms around, including Urartu. Moses grew up in that. He knows the map. He knows the area. So when he's recording for us where the ark lands in Genesis chapter 8, he says it lands in the mountains of Urartu. And he knows this because he was in Pharaoh's household and has had interactions with these people and knows where they are. And he's writing this then 14, 15 uh, 1420 B.C. ish. <laughs> you have to say ish to just give you a little bit of squishy room there. Okay. Now, if Moses knows these things and is recording it at that time, and that's where the ark landed, then we have to say, okay, where are there mountains in Urartu? 
And I have circled them for you with my fancy graphics up here on the screen. Those red ovals are each different mountain ranges um, in the kingdom of Urartu. And there's actually some that are up here. These ones on the north side, they keep going all the way. You can kind of see that, but um, that place is not likely for where the ark landed, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay, so you have these mountains up here on the north by Lake Savan. You have these mountains down here, which are actually an extension of the Taurus Mountains, which go through Turkey. And then you have these mountains here that are just to the west of Lake Urima. And so to give you kind of a modern map, Lake Urima is in Iran. Over here, uh, this purple area pretty much is where Iraq is. And then you have Azerbaijan, you have Armenia, you have Georgia up there where the blue is, and you have Turkey uh, from Mount Ararat over. And the kingdom of Urartu then has all these mountain ranges in there. The tallest mountain is called Mount Ararat today, but it's only been called that for the last couple of hundred years. In the ancient world, we have no recorded name for it, and it's likely that it got the name Mount Ararat um, because of what the Bible says about the Ark, a tradition that it's this area and it must have been the tallest mountain, and we'll call that one Mount Ararat for that reason. Okay, And it's possible that the Ark is on Mount Ararat, but it's not what I think. Okay? All right, now, before we get into what I think, how many of you have heard of the kingdom of Urartu before I mentioned it? Okay, so none of you. Okay, there's a really interesting Armenian um, documentary on it. Okay, uh, it is translated into English, but uh, it's, it's worth watching. I think you can watch it for free on the YouTube. Okay. The reason that you don't know about Urartu is because in 700 BC, it's conquered by the Assyrians, just like the kingdom of Israel. And the Assyrians, when you get conquered by them, you pretty much disappear. Not because they eliminate you people, but because they take them and move them somewhere new and your identity gets lost. Okay? And they did that with the Urartians, and so 700 BC, it kind of disappears for a long time until it sort of kind of reemerges as the kingdom of Armenia uh, in about 100 BC. Okay, so 600 years, it's not really there. And you see a similar thing with the kingdom of Israel as well. But it essentially was forgotten until it started to be rediscovered in the 1800s. In the 1830s, a man traveled to the region and started to write down inscriptions that he found engraved in rocks. And he wrote down the inscriptions and he shipped them off to England. Um, but then he was murdered by the Kurds uh, who are in that area. And you probably know about the Kurds from the Iraq War, right? So he's murdered by the Kurds, and he doesn't write down any more inscriptions. The ones that he did write down are in London, and even today, 
in the Museum of History in London, the entire basement is full of untranslated inscriptions. Okay, so if you want to have a job forever in a fun way, <laughs> learn, um, learn cuneiform <laughs> and they'll find a job for you, I promise. Okay, it took several decades for someone to finally open the envelope and translate these inscriptions and discover that the kingdom of Urartu existed. And right as they were doing that, um, came about World War I, which left this area on the border between um, the Soviet Union and um, Turkey, which at that time, you guys know about the Greek war against the Turks, okay? Um, and even the United States involved a little bit about it, um, not helping the Greeks as much as they should have against the Turks because of political reasons, even though the Turks were enslaving the Greeks and doing terrible things to them, okay? Um, that made this area, with the collapse of the Ottomans and the partition of it and the civil wars that came about right on the border of the Soviet Union, very, very difficult to go into and to study. And it hasn't actually been able to be studied much until the last couple decades after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Even now, uh, how easy is it to go to Iran? <laughs> okay, not, not easy. I do not recommend it. Okay, even Iraq, you could get in there now, but it's, it's probably not very safe. So there hasn't been as much study as there should be, but there has been some. That's why you haven't heard of the kingdom of Urartu, and that's why we kind of have lost it and just talk about Mount Ararat itself. Now, where then did Noah's Ark land? Okay, I should point these on the map here first. The first option is this town right here where this black arrow is, right on this lake. The lake is man-made and recent, but in that area, right along that river, there's a place called Nakchavan. And tradition holds that the name Nakchavan comes from the Greek Nauksauna, which means the place Noah got out of the ark. Okay? And... Um, it's located there. It's a part of Azerbaijan, but it's not connected to Azerbaijan by land. It's an autonomous area, um, and Armenia comes between Nakhchivan and Azerbaijan proper. But it is a part of Azerbaijan because it is majority Islamic. And there, um, they have this building, which is... The Mausoleum of Noah, they say. It's new. It was built in 2006, I think. Yeah, 2006. But it was built on top of an older building that the Soviet Union destroyed. Because what does the Soviet Union not want? Yeah, any religion at all. So they... They destroyed this older building that was the ancient um, building that was supposedly the mausoleum of Noah. Okay? Uh, there was an Armenian church that was there. Okay? And this area was primarily Christian until the Turks and the Soviet Union um, 
killed and moved out the majority of the Christians, right? And so this is a part of the Armenian genocide. Have you heard about that? They stripped women naked and crucified them, and they killed lots more of them, okay? Turkey denies that it happened. It happened. Uh, and that's why this place is primarily Islamic now, okay? Now, if that is where Noah was buried, then it means that the ark could have landed anywhere nearby in those mountains. Um, and so, uh-oh, here we go. Um, make sure I get the picture up here again. Okay, if Nakjavan is here, there are mountains all the way around the north and the east side of it, and it could also be he landed on Mount Ararat and then came down uh, from Mount Ararat and settled in what is called Nakjavan. So that's definitely a possibility. And that's why, too, uh, you see Mount Ararat in this picture, okay? Uh, and then this plain here underneath it is where Nakchavan is. But I don't think that it fits. And the reason is this, and we'll read this as we get to the scriptures again. Noah sends out the dove. And how does Noah know when the dove comes back that the land is dry? It brings an olive branch. Okay? It brings an olive branch. Olives can't grow up here by Mount Ararat. It's too cold. They have winter with snow because they're close to these mountains. And olives, the kind of olives that we're talking about, I know we have Russian olives here, that's different. Those olives that at this time can't grow when there's winter. Winter kills them. So you could make the argument, well, they started to sprout because the, the flood was over and then uh, the winter killed them. You could make that argument, but I think that's a silly argument. <laughs> okay? So that's why I don't think it can be Mount Ararat, although Nakchavan is tempting. You have Ararat. Ararat is a volcano also, an active volcano, uh, active every 75 to 100 years or so. Okay? Um, is that the best place for Noah to live? I don't think it is, okay? That's why I don't live in Washington State, okay? Um, I'm not a big fan of active volcanoes uh, out my back window, okay? Um, at the foot of Mount Ararat, by the way, how many people have seen this place? Darupinar, okay? There's a crazy guy from the 80s named Ron Wyatt who discovered this formation and said, this is petrified wood and it is Noah's Ark. And it's at the foot of Mount Ararat. And thereby, this must be where Noah landed. And in fact, the Turkish government has discovered this and they put up signs and they support tourism to this. And... You see this weird shape? They say it's a petrified boat, and that's the, the ark. But it's not. <laughs> it's not the ark. 
It's actually a lava dike at the foot of a volcano. And that's the way that the lava hardened as it was coming down, and it has eroded into this shape. Okay? So I want you to know that Ron Wyatt, I have up here, he's a crank. Okay? He is. I don't think, is he still alive? Do you know Noah? Do you know Pastor Poppy? Is Ron Wyatt still alive? Okay. He's a crank. If you go online and search Noah's Ark, you will find him. If you search the crossing of the Red Sea, you will find him. Don't believe him. <laughs> okay? This, this is also on the History Channel every year. Okay? That this is the Ark and that it's been discovered. It's not. Okay? Now, what is a good, an actual good solution? Okay? You see down here this other black arrow in these mountains on the south side of Urartu, okay, which would be visible from this whole plain that is Iraq, which we're going to talk more about when we get to the Tower of Babel. And right in the middle of this is a tall mountain called Mount Judy. Now it's Mount Judy with a C, okay, because that's the way they pronounce it. Don't ask me why. Mount Judy. Of all the places, to me, this is the one that makes the most sense. Okay? It's close to the plain of Shinar, which we're going to read about in um, the Tower of Babel account. And in fact, there's a place in the Iraq plain that still retains the name Shinar. Okay? Uh, up on the north side, there's the Sinjar Mountains, which still have that same name. It's easily visible from nearby trade routes, which means it makes sense why Josephus uh, and others said you can see it. There's wood that's been recovered from the 1930s, covered in pitch, that dates to 6,500 years ago, which would be pretty close to when the flood must have occurred. There's also a carving of Sennacherib located on a nearby cliff and there's a tradition that's independent of that carving that says uh, in 2 Kings 19, Sennacherib tries to take over Jerusalem, but his army gets killed uh, by the angel of the Lord, and he's mad. And so he goes back home, and his sons overthrow him, and he escapes to the kingdom of Urartu. And there's a tradition that goes with that, that on his escape, he also went and visited the ark and took a chunk of it and turned it into a talisman of good luck. And so if that story is true, it would make sense that there's a carving of Sennacherib nearby. There had been an ancient church that burned down in 700 AD after being struck by lightning it was not rebuilt as a church, but instead as a mosque, because at that time then, Islam took over that area. And so there's the remains of both a church and a mosque built there to commemorate Noah and the ark um, at that location. And in this picture, um, you see where number four is? Number four is the remains of the church and the mosque are located there. Uh, and then, 
Where the wood was found is right there where the number three is, this kind of dark area there. That's where the wood was found. So, again, this could be the location where the ark was. Now, with all of that said, and I knew I flew through it very, very quickly, I want to end with this. Can we know for sure where the ark was? No. Should it affect our faith? No. Should we fund an expedition to discover the ark and bring back a piece of it and put it in the front of our church and worship that piece? No. But is it an actual historic event? Yes. Absolutely. Even um, I'm reading... Ovid's Metamorphosis right now, uh, which is written at the time of the Emperor Augustus, he talks about a worldwide flood, <laughs> and only two people survived, and all the rest of us are descended from them. This is a real thing that so affected people's memories for hundreds and hundreds of years that it is found in every single culture, and we have good evidence of the general location of where the ark probably is, even if we can't get to the specific location. And in this, God is working to save his people and to bring Christ into the world, and by extension, then that's what's important for us. He's still doing the same thing, working to save us and to point us to Christ, keeping us in the ark of the Christian church and uh, promising a promised land when we get out of this ark uh, by death or by his return on the last day. And I think that's what I kind of want to leave you with on that. Now, Josephus does talk about a mountain that you could go and visit. He's quoting an older guy named Barossus uh, from about the, I think, the 300s B.C. Uh, and so there is an old, old tradition that the ark existed and that you could visit it 2,000, 2,500 years ago, but that knowledge is now lost. And that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. All right. Any very short questions? If you have a long one, write it down, and we'll start with questions next week. We'll have a new sheet next week as well, and we'll talk about Noah and his depression and his drunkenness uh, after he gets off the ark. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.